You're listening to Seeking Connection, a broadcast special from Call to Mind, American public media's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health. I'm Kimberly Adams. Loneliness is defined by mental health professionals as a personal feeling of being alone, regardless of the number of social contacts a person has. So loneliness and social isolation often go hand in hand, but they're not the same thing. When we started production on this program, we asked for your stories about loneliness and how you've made social connections, especially over the last few years. Through your story submissions, our producer Jessica Bari reconnected with an old childhood friend named Jeremy Shad, who now lives in St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, okay. I see he's logging in. Ah, I'm so excited. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> Hello. I could. I told How you. Are I you? Cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You're making me cry. <laughs> I missed you too. God, it's been forever. So, Jessica, tell me a little bit more about Jeremy. I knew Jeremy when I was six or seven years old. His family moved and we were little kids, so we lost touch. And um, it's cool because we connected just earlier in the year. Um, but prior to talking for this show, I hadn't seen him in at least 30 years. I know you must have been so excited to hear from him, but what made you want to follow up to his original submission? Well, the story he sent in was great, but I was also just curious about him. I knew him when we were little kids. He was a funny, goofy little kid. <laughs> and getting a story from him about coping with loneliness made me want to reconnect and learn more. And so we got on the phone. By the way, his voice is much slower now. I'm sure. <laughs> and um, I asked Jeremy if he had ever dealt with loneliness. Yes. Um, prior to me actually coming out to my family. I knew for a long time that something was different about me, but then once I hit my teens, not having a role model, not having somebody who could relate to what I was experiencing. And I saw all these, these friends of mine, all my female friends having boyfriends, all my male friends having girlfriends. You know, I, I'm missing the boat on this. I, I don't have that companionship or that chance to learn about relationships. And that was very isolating and, and, and made me feel very lonely. He told me one way he coped was by focusing on his hobbies. Which was guitar playing um, or to some degree online video games. You, you could fill in that hole of loneliness by being able to talk to people online. In the end, there was still some level of emptiness in that feeling because you didn't physically have the companionship again or somebody you know with you that you could kind of talk to. What he's saying makes so much sense, though, because loneliness is such a tricky feeling. Even people with a lot of social connections can still feel lonely and find themselves looking for those meaningful relationships or maybe a particular kind of community that's missing from their lives. Yeah, and what's really amazing about Jeremy's story is he actually found this really special, important community of friends during the pandemic. My friends, Bo and Jeff, right after the pandemic began, since nobody could necessarily go out, go to the clubs, sing karaoke out and about, they decided to just, hey, let's open up a Zoom meeting and people will just pick a song that they want to sing and Jeff will stream it for you. We are now up to week 101. So it's, it's, it's been going on for almost three years now. 
the first couple weeks they would have maybe 10 people on. And then nowadays, sometimes we will have 30, 40 different guys on. The common thread was a lot of us were, um, we're all gay bears is the best way to put it. Uh, a, a bear is, is guys who are thicker, furry, um, bearded is generally what, what, uh, bears tend to be described as. I don't know where I would be right now without that group because not only was it a way for us to have fun and socialize, but we also used it in, in terms of a, a support structure. If somebody had a bad day, if somebody had been laid off, it really gave us a, an outlet to kind of come together and support one another. So it allowed us to build other people up when they needed that strength. And that, that's absolutely priceless to me. So I really love Jeremy's story because it captured for me a lot of what the research says about loneliness and actually how to beat it. Thank you, Jessica. And thanks to Jeremy Shad of St. Louis, Missouri, for sharing your story as well. Like Jessica said, when it comes to loneliness, there is a lot of new research. Data from the U.S. Census Bureau reveals Americans are spending less time with loved ones and more time alone. And more and more people report feeling lonely pretty regularly. Now, loneliness isn't just about being socially isolated and physically alone. Many people crave and need solitude to recharge and take care of themselves. But when someone's social needs are not met or people feel like they lack quality relationships, that's when the feeling of loneliness can set in and sometimes that can turn into a chronic condition. Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstad is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University, and her research has been changing the narrative around understanding loneliness and how it impacts our well-being and our bodies. Many people have a better understanding of loneliness now due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but Julianne says loneliness has been a concern for decades. Isolation and loneliness were issues that were very concerning and problematic well before the pandemic. And although the pandemic gave each one of us, literally on a global level, a glimpse into what it's like to experience this more persistently, there's data from the American Time Use Survey that looked at how Americans have been spending their time for the last two decades. And what we can see are clear declines in time spent with friends, family, both inside and outside the home, with others in our community, and increases in isolation. So while we saw some striking changes during 2020, these were trends that were very concerning even before the pandemic. And so it should be clear that simply getting back to normal is not going to be enough. What kinds of health conditions can be affected by loneliness? Most of us really associate this with more emotional well-being or even mental health. But we have very good evidence this impacts a variety of physical health conditions, including both short-term and long-term health effects. And we have robust evidence of risk for premature mortality and mortality from all causes. So not just suicide or deaths of despair, 
but deaths from cardiovascular disease, cancer, and other chronic illnesses. And this is independent of any kind of lifestyle factor or or age or any other factor that might explain this. When we look at global data, we find that loneliness is associated with a 26% increase risk for earlier death and isolation, a 29% increase risk for earlier death. Do we have any sense yet of why that is? We know that people who are more socially connected also engage in healthier kinds of behaviors. So for example, our friends or family or people who care about us might encourage us to eat better, to get exercise, to go see a doctor when we need. Those kinds of of behavioral factors can, of course, influence better health. But given that these health effects that I just mentioned control for these behavioral factors, we also know that there are actual direct effects on our biology. So for example, this feeling of loneliness or even just being isolated can be thought of as a state of threat because throughout human history, humans have needed to rely on others for survival. And so this puts extra wear and tear on the body when this state of activation is heightened for long periods of time. So one example of one of those biological processes is inflammation. When inflammation is chronically elevated, this has been linked to depression, to dementia, to cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, And so this is just one example of a biological process that can help explain why it is that isolation and loneliness have been linked to what might otherwise seem like seemingly very diverse kinds of health outcomes. In preparing for this interview, you mentioned to our show's producer that finding quality relationships are what's most important for people dealing with loneliness. Can you talk a little bit more about that, please? Well, first off, we we know that relationship quality matters and that not all relationships are entirely positive. Mm. (laughs) And so as we strive to address this issue of isolation and loneliness, it may be tempting to just simply increase social contact without any kind of attention to the type of contact. And if we fail to take into account quality, we may have unintended consequences. And we it would just be unfortunate if we put a lot of time and resources into various programs that could potentially have some of these unintended harms, such as in increasing conflict or strain in, in relationships. That was Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstad from Brigham Young University. We'll hear from her again later in the show. I'm Kimberly Adams. You're listening to Seeking Connection from Call to Mind. Julianne talked about quality connections, but not all social interactions or relationships are positive or a solution for someone dealing with loneliness. Millions of people turn to the Internet to make friends, talk with people who have a similar hobby or interest, and create connections with others who share their culture. And, of course, many people start online when they're looking for one of the most intimate relationships to add to their life, love. 
But does technology really offer a solution for people who feel lonely and are looking for those close and quality connections? Dr. Elias Abujade is a psychiatrist and clinical professor at Stanford University and has written a number of books and research papers on the intersection of technology and psychology. He says our reliance on technology, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, exposed what he calls a double-edged sword. It offered solutions for some of the necessary pandemic shifts, but also revealed that online connections don't solve all of our problems. I would say with the increased reliance on new technologies during COVID, we have come to really appreciate what a double-edged sword that whole virtual realm uh, has become. On the one hand, it made life possible during the pandemic. It made education possible. It made, uh, it made professional productivity possible. On the other hand, we have grown much more conscious of how lonely you can be in that world, even when you have 400 friends on Instagram and 600 followers on Twitter and countless uh, uh, retweets and, and, and shares of your online content. So in that respect, I think it has made us more appreciative than, than ever of, of the isolation and the loneliness that, that can happen in that, in that world, even when our online Interactions are often sort of guised in this uh, uh, veneer of, of friends and contact and all this positive language. Technology is such an integral part of our lives, and many people have turned to these online communities when they feel something is missing in their physical community. How healthy are these online relationships, especially for somebody who is lonely? They can be very healthy in some respects. We almost prescribe online dating, for example, in folks who have social anxiety disorder and who really struggle with initiating contact with people. So in, in that respect, it can be very helpful indeed. The danger is that oftentimes what ends up happening is that online friendships and online contacts end up replacing our offline relationships. And in that respect, it can be an unhealthy psychological development indeed, because those online relationships aren't necessarily as nurturing. They don't root you in any real community nearly to the same degree as a, as a psychiatrist and a mental health professional. It's not unusual for me to see patients in my clinic who have very, very active online lives and many online connections that they pursue and they try to nurture, but who feel incredibly lonely. I imagine a lot of people will be surprised to hear you say that, you know, when you're feeling lonely, going online to make online friends might not be the best solution because I feel like that's been pitched for years. It's like if you feel lonely, you know, go online and find your community there. Why do you think the narrative needs to change around that? It's perfectly reasonable and can be perfectly healthy to seek online connections when you're feeling lonely. That as a first step makes a lot of sense. Uh, the challenge becomes when these 
relationships stay online and end up not really providing the the sustenance and and the support that the person needs in their real life. The risk is that the person who started out feeling lonely because of a lack of real life friends and real life connections, that person goes online, develops some online connections, and as a result, ends up spending more and more time online. And what happens in their real lives is that they're even more isolated now and have even less offline connections because of all the time and energy and bandwidth that they invested in their online relationships. Some people will be listening to this and hear you talking and say, but my best friends are online. What are some of the restrictions on these relationships that make them different than maybe a close, intimate, in-person relationship? One big question is the longevity of these relationships. There is an aspect to online connections of of all kinds, uh, an aspect that's really easy come, easy go is how I would I would describe it. And we see that uh, with uh, with social connections. We see that to some extent with online therapy when it comes to adherence to online. Therapy, you know, adherence to uh, the frequency and the recommended length of online therapy when your therapist is an online therapist that you've never met in person. There is some data to suggest that people terminate prematurely when it's an online therapy experience. Similarly, I would say with online relationships, whether it's online friendships or online uh, 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 romantic type relationships, there is this aspect where it's very easy to find people, but that those relationships may not last as long, may not be as deep. What's your advice for people who use the internet or social media to meet people? What should they look for to keep those relationships and connections healthy? They should look to transpose the relationship offline rather quickly, or at least incorporate an offline component to the relationship rather quickly, if that's if that's a possibility. They should also look for possible red flags in their social connections. For example, when the bulk of their social relationships are now social media relationships, uh, but they hardly connect with anyone offline, then that's a sign to me that that maybe the person needs to recalibrate. Uh, maybe the person needs to uh, uh, find more equilibrium in their social lives than they currently have. That was Dr. Elias Abujade from Stanford University's Department of Psychiatry. Some spaces have adapted well to the embrace of new technology during the pandemic. I mean, after all, many of us settled into remote work relatively quickly. But that made many workers lonely. And it turns out, even before the pandemic, loneliness was a growing concern and strain on the economy. In the workplace, loneliness looks like job turnover, absenteeism, and poor performance. And that costs employers hundreds of billions of dollars every year. Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman reports on how loneliness adversely affects productivity. Depression, feelings of profound isolation, and loneliness 
All of these have been with 36-year-old Esther Prentice since she was a child. She's been hospitalized once, taken a variety of medications. I tend to isolate when I'm in a depressive state. It's a loneliness of feeling disconnected or as if the people that you want to be closest to you can't explain what's going on inside of you. Prentice lives with her cat in a small apartment in Portland, Oregon. She plays piano to keep her spirits up. She's passed through a series of service jobs, some lonelier than others, including public transit bus driver. That was the worst, not only job, but the worst thing I've ever done for my mental health. The level of stress that you experience while also being sedentary, and also you are alone. All the job churn and depression have caused Prentice to struggle financially at times. Loneliness has a cost to the economy as a whole, too, which it turns out can be measured. 62% of employed adults in the United States consider themselves lonely. Ann Bowers researches loneliness in the American workplace at insurance company Cigna. She says lonely workers have higher rates of stress-related absenteeism. They missed more than five additional workdays per year. They're less attached and committed at work. They were twice as likely to report intention of quitting their jobs in the next 12 months than workers who are not lonely. Bottom line, loneliness costs employers billions of dollars a year. And, says Bowers, substantially contributes to worker job withdrawal and has negative implications for organizational effectiveness and costs. Now, traditionally, work has been a place where many people assuaged their loneliness. A place for people to socialize, to meet people, and to create a sense of community. But the workplace has changed over the years with remote working and things like that. There are still places outside of work to find connection and community. Corey Smith is 44 and lives in New York City. He's experienced mental health struggles, and last year, his mother, who was his primary social contact, died. The job I was doing was I was a mover. At the loss of my mother, I just, I just didn't have the strength. I didn't have the capacity to smile and shake hands and be sweet and fake and things like that. And it led to me being ousted from my job. He ran out of money and was barely eating. He's since found support at the Henry Street Settlement, where he goes for counseling and meals and hopes to start a job training program. They helped me help myself kind of climb out of that pit of loneliness that I found myself in. Social media can potentially mitigate loneliness if it also fosters real-life personal connections. That's what 51-year-old Dina Hindi has been trying to build for her mom in Queens, New York. Hindi's father died three years ago. Her 84-year-old mother was left with few friends. Hindi figured... There's got to be a lot of lonely people that are widows. So that's why I just created a meetup group to see if I can get people together. She's recruited several women using the social media platform who now go out periodically for Italian food. But while she's trying to help her mom, Hindi's drowning in loneliness herself between caregiving and her job as an executive assistant. It is super demanding, and I'm not going to lie to say that I'm not struggling. I'm really struggling. I don't really have much of a social life. I mean, my husband and I haven't gone out in months and months. Employers can take steps to make work a less lonely place. 
at the weekly team meeting, for example. Uni Turatini is an author and human connection consultant. She says take five or ten minutes to go around the room or the video call, and you have one person each week that gets to share something about their life that most people don't know about them. So something that is not perhaps work related. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be like you know deep, which makes people feel seen and heard and valued. Sometimes it's the job itself you have to get right to stop being lonely. Esther Prentice found the one for her. She's now a barber in a small salon, seeing clients one on one. And I love being at work. I have my hour with each person, and for some people, they're getting their heads shampooed, and it's the first time that they've been cared for and they've been touched in a while, which is really can be very powerful. And keeps her on an even enough keel to keep coming back to work day after day. For Call to Mind, I'm Mitchell Hartman from Marketplace. Welcome back to Seeking Connection from Call to Mind. I'm Kimberly Adams. The National Council on Aging reports loneliness affects 20 million older adults and has serious health consequences. Older folks can be more at risk for loneliness and isolation for a number of reasons, like the loss of a spouse and friends, illness or mobility issues. One of the nation's top experts on loneliness is Dr. Carla Parisinotto, a geriatrician and palliative care physician at the University of California, San Francisco and Vitas Healthcare. Dr. Parasinoto sees the benefits of social connections every day in her work with senior citizens and people in hospice care. So I started looking into loneliness when I was in my training as a physician. I was a resident in internal medicine. I was interested in working with older adults. And I was recognizing in my own practice and in the hospitals I was working in that there were some older adults that who were doing better than others despite what medical things they had going on, despite the high blood pressure or the cholesterol or the diabetes. And I just was thinking, there's got to be something that's missing that we're not actually understanding. And that's what made me embark on this study using a national database called the Health and Retirement Study. And what we found in that study is that in people who reported even just some degree of loneliness who were over the age of 60, over six years, we saw an increased risk of functional decline. Functional decline is the loss of ability to be independent, needing more help with tasks, and an increased risk of death. When you think about these last few years, what are some of the key things that we've learned about loneliness? I think the key points are that it is more common than we ever imagined. And though there are risk factors for some people to be more at risk for loneliness and, and isolation than others. So for example, we know that losses predict loneliness, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a partner, of a job, of hearing, of vision, of physical function, all those things predict. But here we are in a pandemic where all ages, all abilities, all ethnicities, we were all at risk. And so those of us that maybe thought, oh, I'll never you know, be lonely, suddenly we're really forced to feel it. What do we know about who is at the highest risk of loneliness? Great question. And I would say I'm going to give my biases up front is that I am ageist. I'm ageist in that I love older people. And so in my work for the longest time, what we actually saw 
was that older adults had higher risk. But what we're finding now is actually younger generations and children are at very high risk. It's also highlighting some gaps in what we know in that when we get older, our physiologic reserve, which means our ability to bounce back from an illness for something happening to us is just smaller. We're not as resilient in that sense, physiologically. We're resilient in other ways. but And so our risk of harm from loneliness and isolation as we get older are much bigger, which is why we saw such devastation amongst older adults. But in children, what we're seeing, I think, is very high risk. I think we're trying to understand why that is. I would love to blame social media and technology on everything, but I don't think that's the full picture. We have historically thought that age is a big predictor. I think that's starting to change. But I think in other ways, there's other things that predict risk. So for example, if you come from a traditionally marginalized group, that's going to increase your risk of loneliness because of feelings of belonging. We're in an era in this country where racism, which has been around and there, but people are trying to hide and pretend it doesn't exist. Well, it's out in the open. So think about living in a community where where your perceived race, your ethnicity is not welcomed. That's going to make you feel really hard to feel connected and feel welcomed if you're not from that majority group. If you are linguistically isolated, that is incredible risk. And probably some of the most challenging cases I've had clinically to target loneliness or isolation are when I have patients who are new um, immigrants to this country or are from groups where linguistically we don't have services from them and they feel very disconnected. That is probably the area that tears at my heartstrings the most. I'm a first generation of American. My parents are both immigrants. And so that story is very real and very present to me. Right. Because it's hard to find community when you can't talk to anybody. That's exactly right. That was Dr. Carla Parasinoto from the University of California, San Francisco. Carla talked about communities of people who are more at risk for social isolation and loneliness because of who they are. People can be marginalized for many reasons. Gender identity, race and culture, a disability, or even an illness they're managing. Those living with serious mental illnesses like bipolar disorders, major depression, or post-traumatic stress are more than twice as likely to experience loneliness, and the effects of that loneliness are incredibly damaging. It can lead to higher levels of hospitalization, poverty, and unemployment. Lydia McMullen-Laird reports from New York City on one way to help prevent loneliness for people with serious mental illnesses. When you walk into a room, you can't help but notice Carmen Murray-Williams. Carmen Yolanda Murray-Williams. Carmen is 64, but she exudes a youthful energy. She's dressed from head to toe in hot pink, pink glasses, a pink mask, pink leggings, and a pink Nike swoosh on her blue shoes. I always do this. I always put on pretty colors to make myself happy. Carmen has lived in New York City most of her life. She has a master's degree in business, and she used to work as a legal secretary. But she's been through a lot. There were times when she was dealing with homelessness and struggled with substance use. And eventually, at 42, she was diagnosed with a bipolar disorder. I didn't know that people was going to start treating me like I was different and looking down on me and acting like I couldn't handle things. Carmen was hospitalized multiple times. 
And then, about two years after her diagnosis, she heard about a place called Fountain House. It's in a row of brick buildings in midtown Manhattan that blends seamlessly into the surrounding neighborhood. You'd almost miss it if you didn't know it was there. But Carmen says, behind its big green double doors is something beautiful. When I walked in the building, I saw the chandeliers and the winding staircase. It's like coming into like a mansion and, and being, you know, you're special now. You're, you're part of the like elite. Fountain House provides a place for people living with serious mental illness to socialize and build connections. It's kind of like a community center, but for people who feel like they don't fit in in other places. They give you that hope here that you can do anything and be anything you want, no matter what um, society is telling you. Because they tell us you have a mental illness, you're stupid. You're not stupid if you have a mental illness. All of us can do something, you know, and we're capable. We're human beings. We want to be accepted and joining everything that the world has to offer, too. Fountain House was founded 75 years ago, and it pioneered what is now known as the clubhouse model. Today, it has about 2,000 members. On a Wednesday afternoon in February, a couple hundred of them are here. And just like Carmen, they depend on this place to feel less alone. I was angry at the world, and I felt like the only way out was was suicide until Fountain House came in the picture. And I was able to try to be more understanding on, on people as a whole. When I'm not here, it's like a cloudy day, like a mute day. And then when I'm here, it's like a nice day in the park. Like the sky's clear and blue. There's some clouds, yeah. Maybe windy. Not a perfect day, but a pretty nice day. At 3.30, people gather in the basement dining room for their weekly meeting. Good news. Let's go. Good news. I'm excited for this. All right. There's a lot happening today. Yoga class, chef's club, even dressmaking. And at the youth center on the second floor... Fountain House staffer Delena Peak is helping a club member with his resume. You know, you always want to boost yourself up. You have strong organization skills. Just the resume part is like, I can't believe I'm doing it. It's a big step. It's a big start. Peak has worked here for four years, and she's seen what a difference this kind of social connection can make. We kind of create this, I like to think of it almost like a bubble of safety and community and familiarity, and hopefully those skills that you can learn while building community and connecting and socializing here, that will apply outside as well. Fountain House has two locations in New York City. It's inspired similar clubhouses in 40 states and 30 countries. Francesca Pernice teaches psychology at Wayne State University, and she studies the clubhouse model. Professor Pernice says that people who attend clubhouses have twice the rate of employment, and they're less likely to end up in prison. They also have an easier time finishing school and finding housing than other people living with serious mental illnesses. And all that means this model saves a lot of money. It reduces the cost of psychiatric care over time. It also significantly reduces the cost of psychiatric care by keeping people out of the hospital, out of emergency rooms. Pranitia says the problem is there just aren't enough of these clubhouses out there. You know, these models, these programs, to me, should be in every community, just like a library. There are over 9,000 public libraries in the U.S. alone, but there are only about 300 clubhouses worldwide. 
There's some government funding available, but advocates say it's not nearly enough. They've been pushing for more research to show how effective the clubhouse model can be at combating loneliness and all the problems that come with it. For Call to Mind, I'm Lydia McMullen-Laird in New York City. A brief disclosure here. The Fountain House receives funding from the Sozo Save Foundation, which also financially supports Call to Mind. I'm Kimberly Adams. You're listening to Seeking Connection from Call to Mind. As we've heard, treating loneliness is complicated and doesn't have one solution. It's unique to every individual based on who they are, where they live, what resources they have available to them, and the kind of quality connections that fulfill them. But Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstad from Brigham Young University, who we heard from earlier, says having social connections needs to be prioritized. She argues we need to address loneliness at the same level we do eating a nutritious diet or getting enough sleep at night. She's advocating for creating national health guidelines. Early on in the pandemic, I got lots of interview requests from journalists because the public is desperate to know what level of connection is needed for health effects and at what point it becomes dangerous. And so I have argued that we need national health guidelines. And we know that we have comparable evidence in terms of the health effects, but we don't have a good sense of what those numbers are, what's equivalent to, you know, five fruits and vegetables a day or 10,000 steps. So what would those guidelines look like? First off, one challenge is that we all need social connection and we're all somewhere on a continuum, but we can start to look at various quantifiable aspects of social connection. But we could look at um, in terms of just even numbers of relationships in people's social network. So there is some evidence to suggest that between four to six relationships may be adequate and that below that number is associated with increased risk and uh, um, above that um, is associated with increased protection. Another aspect of social connection that we could look at that's numerical is in terms of frequency of interacting. One thing that research has consistently shown is that complete isolation um, is, is associated with incredible risk and that some kind of daily interaction will be important. Um, and so anything less than daily would put someone at risk and more than daily could potentially be protective. Another potential recommendation could be around, well, what types of interactions should we be having? And research has shown that um, just like uh, our, our dietary recommendations, that having a variety of fruits and vegetables are important. Similarly, having a variety of people in our lives, looking to the types of people that we interact with. So not only just friends, but our neighbors, family, um, even strangers, um, but also interacting with people who are different from you. Any, any of these kinds of differences can also help us gain uh, a stronger perspective on a variety of, of things that can ultimately um, influence our, our well-being. And then lastly, limit the kinds of 
things that may be more harmful. Limit the time we spend on online or in negative kinds of relationships. But to change guidelines, you have to change policy. And to change policy, you first have to change minds. And according to Dr. Carla Parasinoto from the University of San Francisco, that starts with getting better at talking about loneliness. I think that there's still this stigma around loneliness, much like there's been a stigma around mental health in general. There's a stigma around admitting that we're depressed, that we've had a history of depression. Um, but with loneliness, I think loneliness specifically, potentially isolation as well. But there's the stigma, I believe, for a couple of reasons. One, there must be something wrong with me. I'm not going to admit that and talk about it. And two, and the challenge of talking about this is that there's a lot of untalked about elder abuse in older adults. And the fear then of saying that you live alone, or that you don't have a support system, that you'll become prey and a victim to scams and abuse. And it's the reality. What about how the outside world views people who are lonely? That picture of the lonely person is is any of us, right? And so we've had a lot of stereotypes about the older, lonely old lady, and that's not the case anymore. It's it's very different. Many countries are thinking about loneliness in a big way right now. Japan and England even appointed ministers of loneliness. Is the healthcare system here in the U.S. set up for older people specifically to age well and stay socially connected? Ooh, can of worms. <laughs> can of worms. Let's open it. Um, so in a short answer, no, we're not prepared. But can we be? Yes, absolutely. But it takes us making that commitment and changing how we define health. I think in the last five years, we've seen a turn of the tide. We've seen this term social determinants of health, which is everything that we've ignored for decades in healthcare suddenly start coming into medical encounters. But how we do that remains to be seen. Julianne Holt-Lundstedt and I just published an article in the New England Journal of Medicine talking about a framework to help clinicians assess loneliness and isolation in healthcare settings. And we proposed a very simple framework called EAR. E is for educate, the A is for assess, and the R is for respond, which means that really the first part of what we do, which is a very fundamental health principle, which is what we're doing today on this show, is educate. Like we need to empower ourselves as people and as consumers of our healthcare system that this is important to our health and we need to demand that of our healthcare systems. It's no longer okay to just say, Carla, let's focus on your hypertension and yet we're not addressing the fact that I can't afford my blood pressure medications or I don't have transportation to go get to them or I'm feeling so isolated and so lonely that I'm so incapacitated that I can't even leave my home. Well, that's ineffective if that's what I'm focusing on. The assess part of this is actually using validated tools like what we've done in research to be able to quantify and get a sense of how severe is my problem of loneliness. 
And the third part, the respond is anything from, okay, Carla, we'll talk about this again at your next visit, or let's talk about if you want to do something about your loneliness and how we can actually tackle it. So I think we have the tools. We're at a crossroads like everything else is, do we want to invest in our health? For someone who is lonely, when you're talking to somebody who's struggling with chronic loneliness, what do you recommend they do to try to make quality social connections? Because it's hard to step outside of yourself. What's, what's step one? Step one is admitting it, right? It's actually having enough sense to recognize and say that I'm lonely or that I'm isolated. It's talking about it, number two. And it's three, if you're able to, is to think about what could be driving that. If you, is there some active work to re-engage in existing relationships that maybe need strengthening? Or when you don't have that because you really do not have a community, there are amazing community programs across the United States to connect by phone or by internet for those that this is something that they need. Thanks again to Dr. Carla Parisinotto from the University of California, San Francisco. Pretty much everyone we talked to for this program told us that to address what they call our nation's loneliness epidemic will require a fundamental change in how loneliness is recognized, talked about, and treated in our healthcare system. In the meantime, individuals experiencing loneliness have some options. If things get really bad, reach out to a mental health professional or call 988. And people can also try to prioritize new connections. New research reveals broadening social interactions and engaging with different social contacts can lead to happier moods, better well-being, and even stronger physical health. For one group of seniors in Michigan, that's exactly what Friday night is for. Peter Cox from Minnesota Public Radio News reports. Friday night in Ann Arbor, Michigan, is just the beginning of another party weekend. Throughout the night in this university town, the downtown bars are packed and the sidewalks in front of the fraternity and sorority houses swarm with students. But before any of that has really started, one bar is already busy. At 6.30, inside the doorway at Ann Arbor Live, the dance floor is packed as the band plays. On the floor, people in their 60s and their 70s dance in groups, as couples, alone. Jeanette Duane says the weekly happy hour at Ann Arbor Live is inclusive and loving, and that brings her back each week. And it makes you feel younger and more energetic, and I really look forward to it, and it's one of the happiest things in my life. Randy Tessier plays in bands, and he books them at the bar each weekend. He's been doing this since the 1970s. There's a lot of people here that have been coming to these happy hours since 1980. And then there are new older people checking it out. Tessier says it started out as a way to get his and other bands some live shows. Over the decades, they've changed venues several times before settling on this bar about 10 years ago. The best part is seeing people happy and joyous. People dance, they wear flashy outfits, and most importantly, they socialize. 
According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, social isolation is associated with a 50% increased risk of dementia. Poor social relationships are associated with a 29% increased risk of heart disease. Joe Gaugler, a professor of aging and long-term care at the University of Minnesota, says people going out, getting together and dancing, is what optimal aging looks like. He says as a society, there are fewer and fewer outlets like this for people. We're missing that a lot in our society now. If one takes a step back and kind of looks at those civic organizations and structures that in the past offered this type of social engagement for us, particularly as we get older, they kind of aren't around as much anymore. And so the fact that this is continuing, I mean, it's a model and I think it's wonderful. The band on stage, the Saints of Soul, play the Rolling Stones, Otis Redding and Sam and Dave. And so as long as the bands are playing our kind of music, we feel very comfortable. Carl Dees has been coming to the happy hour for 10 years. He's also a trumpet player in a band. He says the music and the people keep him coming back. Well, a lot of people, they come every week. Eventually you get to know them and and you dance with them and get to know their husbands or or wives or whatever. And it's just, we're all just friends and it's so much fun. Jeanette Hyde, who's 70, says she loves the dancing, the community, but also the timing. It's a great thing for our age because it starts at 6.30 and it ends at 9.00. It's like perfect. Yeah. You know, it's we can go home because we're really not up for the midnight shift. So Terry Gordonier and her husband Terry are longtime attendees. She says the group has changed and morphed over the years. During the pandemic, they shifted things online and they would hold happy hours on Zoom. She says they've stayed tight-knit throughout. We have started doing a bunch of other things too. We go hiking, we go biking, we go kayaking. So it's a really wonderful social activities, and it's a lot of fun just to hang out with people that have common interests. That community isn't just for people of a certain age. It stretches across generations. Chelsea Anderson has been a bartender at Live for six years. So I know pretty much everybody by first name, like knew their drink order, stuff like that. Anderson says she's learned how to age and have fun while doing it from the happy hour patrons. But they became more than that after her mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. When the Ann Arbor Live regulars found out, they held a fundraiser to help her mother. I like had to stop myself from crying like five different times during the fundraiser. And even like afterwards, I mean, we raised like a couple grand for my mom. So it's like emotional to talk about. Um, every single week they were like, how's your mom doing? Give us an update, like what's going on with her. And so it's, that's just... They, like, genuinely care. Anderson says it feels like a large family, and it's the reason she keeps working Fridays and the regulars keep coming. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Ann Arbor. We love you guys. For Mind, I'm Peter Cox from NPR News. You've been listening to Seeking Connection, part of a national series from Call to Mind, American public media's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health. Support for this program is provided by the Sozo Say Foundation and the David and Laura Lovell Foundation. This special was written and produced by our senior producer, Jessica Bari. Our technical director was Alex Simpson. A special thank you to Rick Carr, Nancy Liebens, and Curtis Gilbert for their editing help. And this show was edited and hosted by me, Kimberly Adams. 
Follow Call to Mind on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Call to Mind Now. And you can find helpful resources and our past programs on our website, calltomindnow.org. Thank you for joining us for Seeking Connection, a broadcast special by Call to Mind from American Public Media.